You're listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a new podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. It's the place we talk about everything that's important and nothing that isn't. I'm your host, Vinay Prasad. We're going to start by talking about a recent comment that appeared in Nature by John Yonides and colleagues entitled, The Scientists Who Publish a Paper Every Five Days. We'll then have an interview with fourth-year medical student Jeffrey Wagner. Jeffrey Wagner is one of the authors of a recent paper that we did in the British Medical Journal. And that paper is the answer to a question that was posed by an astute listener. Finally, we'll have an interview with Renee Diverstall. Renee is a hospitalist leader here at OHSU doing research in the bedside ultrasound. Stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to iTunes and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. And send us an email at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what we're doing right. Let us know how we can improve. We'd love to field your questions on future episodes. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or whatever service you prefer. First, the comment from the journal Nature. The scientists who publish a paper every five days. To highlight uncertain norms in authorship, John Yonides and colleagues identified the most prolific scientists of recent years. I'm going to take you through this Nature paper because I thought it was quite provocative, and it's a subject that's near and dear to my heart. Some listeners may know that in 2015, I was the author of a paper entitled Authorship Inflation in Medical Publications. With my colleagues Gauri Talak and Anupam Jena from Harvard Medical School, we took a look at a set of articles that appeared in prominent medical journals over many years, between 1960 and 2010. We asked ourselves, how many authors do randomized controlled trials have? How many authors do observational studies have? And have these changed over time? We also looked at some other types of papers. Our overall conclusion was that there has been author inflation, that the number of authors for studies today is greater than it had been in years past. And this is not explained by growing study size or some other considerations we took a look at. We conclude this way, put together, these findings raise the question of whether increasing research complexity and the shift towards clinical trials can substantively explain author inflation. And we conclude with, our findings therefore support the view that authorship growth may be inflationary, a result of increased pressures for funding and promotion, as well as the perception that the inclusion of additional senior authors may hasten publication. So we were suspicious then, and I'm still suspicious today, that some authors of papers don't really belong there, and their attribution is merely a form of inflation. John Yonides and colleagues are also suspicious in their paper, The Scientists Who Publish a Paper Every Five Days. Here's how they start this provocative paper. Authorship is the coin of scholarship, and some researchers are minting a lot. We search Scopus for authors who publish more than 72 papers a year between 2000 and 2016. Quote, a figure that many would consider implausibly prolific, end quote. They got 9,000 individual names that were resulted. However, the vast majority, 7,800 plus, were physicists. In physicists, large consortia teams is the hallmark of authorship, and therefore they gave credit to all those authors and excluded them. After excluding the physicists, the authors noted that 909 
author names involved Chinese or Korean names, which Scopus had difficulty in disambiguating. For this reason, the authors omitted all of these names for future consideration. This left 265 authors whom the authors believed really were publishing more than one paper every five days for years. These were the authors called hyperprolific authors. And in fact, they were hyperprolific. They were beyond what most people think is possible. So they emailed all 265 authors asking for their insights. And here's what they found. 81 replies, and they're all published in the supplement, and it's quite interesting to read through. Of course, the authors say there are good reasons why they're publishing so much. They cite, quote, hard work, love of research, mentorship of very many young researchers, leadership of a research team, or even perhaps many teams, and frequent and extensive collaboration. Some even say they sleep a few hours a day, which is very bad for you, so I do not advise you do that. I think it's better to skip a few papers. I just want to point out a few things that John Ioannidis and colleagues noted. Quote, we did observe that some authors seem to become hyper-prolific on becoming full professors, department chairs, or both. They also point out that the ICMJE does not count supervision, mentorship, or obtaining funding as sufficient grounds for authorship. Authors have to do four things. One, play a role in designing and conducting experiments. Two, help to write or revise the manuscript. Three, approve the published version. And four, take responsibility for the contents. Merely providing funding for others to do work is the role of philanthropists and, and sponsors, but is not the role of authors. Here's another point made by John Ioannidis. Occasionally, they notice that some people have had accelerations in their publication rates. Here's something they point out. Quote, Occasionally, the acceleration is stunning. At the peak of their productivity, some cardiologists publish 10 to 80 times more papers in one year compared with their average annual productivity when they were 35 to 42 years old. There was also a sharp decrease after passing the chair to a successor. Well, that's quite interesting. How could a researcher who hadn't been publishing that much, become a leader in a department, suddenly publish quite a bit, and then upon relinquishing that leadership position, start to publish very little again. Hmm, that's an unusual way scholarship works. Unless, of course, you're forcing everyone in your department to name you as an author, which would really smell quite fishy. Finally, Yonides and colleagues conclude with this. Quote, overall, hyper-prolific authors might include some of the most energetic and excellent scientists. However, such modes of publishing may also reflect idiosyncratic field norms, to say the least. Loose definitions of authorship and an unfortunate tendency to reduce assessments to counting papers muddy how credit is assigned. One still needs to see the total publishing output of each scientist benchmarked against norms for their field. And of course, there is no substitute for reading the papers and trying to understand what the authors have done. Yes, I think many of us who follow the world of academic publishing are growing increasingly concerned by the fact that some people bully their way onto other papers, or perhaps they merely create a culture in which their names has to be added to other papers. So I've talked a lot about this podcast about ghost writing and medical writers and how I don't like that. I also don't like this desire to be a part of many, many papers when you really didn't have anything to do with it. I think we'd all be better off if we focused on our own work, took credit and responsibility for the things we did, and did not seek credit for the things we did not do. The last thing I'd say about this paper by John Yonides and colleagues is absolutely do not 
go to the supplemental information, download the Excel spreadsheet of all the names included in the data set, sort them in descending order by number of publications, and look for names you know. You do not want to do that. That's all for now. Let's turn to our interview with Dr. Jeffrey Wagner to take a stab at answering the listener's question. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Jeffrey Wagner. Jeffrey Wagner is a fourth-year medical student at the Oregon Health and Science University. He's a budding, a budding what? Dr. Wagner, soon to be Dr. Wagner. What are you going to go into? I know. The applications are due on Saturday. They're due on Saturday, so I hope you decide at least by Friday. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I decided I'm going into medicine. Internal, internal medicine. medicine. A wise choice. A wise man. But it wasn't an easy decision, was it? No. No, no, no. I, I, start, I had a hard time. Uh, I was on the surgery train for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, you saw the light, despite your sur- your budding surgical career, you saw the light and decided to yeah. join us here in IM. Yeah, I think, I mean, surgery is great, but um, the beauty of medical school is I got to actually see what it's like to practice mm-hmm. in some capacity. You know, I, the analogy was, it's like, I like watching football, but mm-hmm. I don't know that I want to be a linebacker until you actually get in the game. Mm, and I so see, right. when, once I got there, I think I think medicine's a better fit. Mm. And it gives, it gives you a lot of options. You could be a proceduralist, you could be a... Uh, cognitive doctor. Yeah. Uh, you, you could do uh, really a lot of different things within medicine. Yeah. Heck, you could be a doctorpreneur. That's what they. That's what a lot of people go into afterwards. I, I'm not familiar with that term. A doctorpreneur is a doctor entrepreneur, someone <laughs> who it, it takes advantage of all the opportunities out there in the world, and except for the practice of medicine. Very rarely do doctorpreneurs practice medicine. They do other things. Huh. Make apps. It's, all, it's just a matter of apps, isn't it? Just a few more apps and we'll be we'll be good. I think so. Maybe I str- I struggle with my phone though, so I don't I don't know that I'll be able to produce something that people would use. Uh-huh. I, uh huh. I I feel very similar to you. I curse the phone quite frequently because the only thing it's no good at anymore is actually making phone calls, which is what I want to use it for. That's true. I never have service. I always <laughs> use the Wi-Fi. I think we peaked with Motorola Razor. That those were the good days, and since then it's been all downhill. I think that's fair. I would agree. Well. Soon to be Dr. Wagner, we brought you here to the plenary session stage because of a listener question. So I, I want to thank the listener, and I want to thank you for coming here. Yeah, of course. It's the listener, honor. oh, well, I'm, I'm glad you feel that way, that it, that it is an honor. I, I, you fully recognize the value of the podcast plenary session. It's like a real plenary session, but our audience is much larger, I like to tell people. I don't know if that's true or not, but I like to tell people nonetheless. Mm. So the listener wants to know, the listener wants to know, do you know anything about the National Comprehensive Cancer Network Guidelines? Do they recommend things that are FDA approved? Do they ever go beyond those recommendations? And when they do, what's the level of evidence they rely upon? Mm-hmm. And when the listener asked me this question, I thought to myself, well, there's no better person to answer that question than Dr. John Markar. But since he's not here, then I'll go with Dr. <laughs> Dr. Jeffrey Wagner. Soon to be Dr. John Marquardt is an actual doctor. That's true. You're soon to be Dr. Jeffrey Wagner. Yeah, yeah. But no, I think you'll do just as just as well a job as, as Dr. Marquardt would have. I, I, I joke because we had uh, four authors who were the co-first authors of this paper. Dr. Marquardt, Dr. Wagner, Dr. Lammers, who's now in private practice in um, mm-hmm. Colorado, and uh, Dr. Ruby, who's Correct. also a doctor who graduated last year. Correct, yeah. And for the sake of time... 
soon to be Dr. Jeffrey Wagner, I hope you'll allow me to give a brief summary of our paper and then toss it to you for the interpretation. So our paper that appeared in the British Medical Journal was entitled Frequency and Level of Evidence Used in Recommendations by the NCCN Guidelines Beyond Approvals of the US FDA. It was a retrospective observational study. And really what we did was we looked at every drug approval between 2011 and 2015, and we asked on a date in March in 2016, how many of these approvals had been codified into the NCCN guidelines, and how many times did the NCCN go beyond those approvals? We found 47 drugs were approved for 69 purposes in the, by the FDA in our time period. By 2016 in March, we found every single one of those drug approvals was included in the NCCN. But the NCCN went beyond this and recommended these drugs for 44 or 39% more additional purposes, or what we call extrapolations. So the question goes, when the NCCN went beyond what the U.S. Food and Drug Administration had approved the drug for, did they do so with high-level, randomized, controlled trial evidence? Soon to be Dr. Wagner. The answer to this, and I think this was really the key finding in my mind of the study, was no. The, you know, the the ideal, robust clinical evidence to kind of guide management didn't exist in in this case. In fact, uh, 33% of these recommendations had no cited evidence within the guidelines. And in my mind, it, it was important mm -hmm. because we did not do a systematic review of all these therapies. Mm -hmm. But what we did do was say, if, if these recommendations are being used widely in clinical practice, uh, I think the, the recommending body, if we want to dig deeper as to why they're offering these recommendations, um, you know. Has the obligation. Exactly, exactly. Mm. So Has the obligation to provide the when data. When we went back to see why, that, that wasn't found. Um, and uh, yeah, in my mind, that was kind of the key finding uh, of the study itself. So what you're saying is, if I have this right, that the NCCN is extrapolating, going beyond what the US Food and Drug Administration approved drugs for. When they do, oftentimes they don't give you any data at all to hang your hat on in those decisions. Um, and you and I are skeptical that that data even exists. And I'll tell you why. Because when the data does exist, they have no problem citing the data at other times. They did cite data in some instances when they do have data. You're nodding your head, but you got to say something because this is a podcast. <laughs> I can say something. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. No, I, 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 you're correct. You're, I think you're 100% correct. Mm -hmm. By doing this project on the NCCN guidelines and really holding them to a high bar and looking not superficially, but rather very deeply at all of their recommendations, um, do you view guidelines differently, be that NCCN or other? Absolutely. I think... The guidelines are excellent to have because they they guide treatment, mm -hmm. and there are tons of questions that, especially as a student, come up. And if I can go to a guideline mm -hmm. that I can starting point, yeah, exactly. But in how I think about them, th they're not dogma, mm. and a lot of the time it requires if I'm really trying to hone in on what's the benefit and the risk. Mm -hmm. The, the guideline is not where the where the buck stops. It's mm -hmm. what's what's the evidence behind that guideline? Mm -hmm. Why is this being recommended? And I think, especially in, in something like cancer, uh, where I was really interested 
is that these are therapies that cost a lot mm -hmm. to the healthcare system, mm -hmm. and they also have higher toxicity. Mm -hmm. uh, a common one, which you know, being a medical student, you have the you have the fortune to go on different services mm -hmm. and kind of see the different sides of different clinical teams. And so, on the pulmonary side, I saw patients where you know they were getting pneumonitis mm -hmm. secondary to uh, immune modulator, Im immune modulator therapy. Mm -hmm. Some of these new immunotherapy drugs, right? Exactly. And so, so you're saying, yeah, go ahead, finish this thought. Yeah, I like where it's going. They yeah. cost a lot. They have high toxicity. So what does that mean for the evidence? Exactly. So I think the evidence, if you're going to put the patient at risk for this, needs to be needs to be good. The risks well are said. the mm -hmm. risks are high, mm -hmm. and though the benefit may be real, if you're treating on a population level. Mm -hmm. It needs to be better than, in my mind, a, a report of 44 patients, mm -hmm. especially because the other toxicity, which doesn't, which everyone knows, but I don't think is accounted for a lot in prescribing, is is the toxicity to patients' wallets. Mm -hmm. You know, with medical costs being probably mm -hmm. the biggest driver of bankruptcy in the United States right now. Mm -hmm. So, I feel like you've you really had a few pearls. <laughs> and what you were just saying, your pearls are, when you read guidelines, the buck doesn't stop there. You want to know why the guidelines say what they do. Um, when you prescribe therapies with real side effects and real cost, you set a high standard because those drugs need to meet that standard to, to justify those kind of practice patterns. Um, you know what happens when I'm on service and I ask uh, the fellow, for instance, why are we doing X, Y, or Z? And they tell me, well, NCCN says so. <laughs> I think you know what will happen to that answer. I have a feeling. I have a feeling. Yeah, that answer is usually considered not satisfactory. And <laughs> I'm going to want to try again for another answer. And um, so... W did you learn something about research by doing this project? I mean, I think listeners don't really understand how many hours do you think we sunk in? Not, well, maybe not me. Let's not talk about my hours. Let's talk about how many hours you sunk into this project. How many hours did you sink into it? I mean, it's not like it clocked in and out, obviously, but it, it, it took us two years to complete the project. Uh -huh. And I, I mean, being a medical student, nights and weekends was when I was doing my research. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Yeah, a lot of nights and weekends. A lot of nights and weekends. It yeah. wasn't easy. No, I mean, over, over a two-year period, and the nice part, you mentioned Dr. Marquardt, is we were roommates. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, he's a great friend, and we were obviously very passionate about this project. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was really easy to go to 7-Eleven and grab a pizza and then, uh, you know. And then work on it for a few hours? Yeah. And the project you describe is... It's like a pomegranate. There's fruit in there, but it's a heck of a time to get it out. Yeah, ex exactly. <laughs> but, I mean... I, one of the things and I met that's why I mentioned before is that it was a really interesting question, very practical research to me, is that um, you know it was engaging, it was interesting. and I, I, I felt like it was very meaningful research mm -hmm. um, that answered an, an important question um, that a lot of people, patients included, would be interested in, in mm -hmm. thinking about. So for the bottom line, for the listener's question, listener says, um, when the NCCN goes beyond drug approvals and makes a recommendation, what would you say about the caliber or quality of the provided evidence for those decisions? Good, bad, uncertain? I, I think you need to dig at the evidence because I, I think mm -hmm. there, are, there are, the NCCN cites robust studies, mm -hmm. but you really, I think, need to ask beyond the guideline mm -hmm. because that's not always the case. It's not always the case. And certainly in, in this instance, when we're talking about the instances where there's differences between what 
the FDA approval process dictated a therapy to be for, and then the off-label use recommended by the NCCN, I would say more so than, you know, other recommendations within those guidelines that be very wary of the evidence Mm -hmm. behind that. Because I think, I believe it was like 26% were randomized trials. Mm -hmm. And that's just randomized. That doesn't include double blind, placebo controlled, or even, you know, well, you know, we've talked about this, but how how the control side of a trial can really influence the outcome and in my mind is something that needs to be looked at very, you know, uh, seriously, I, I guess, see. when you're making a recommendation. What you're saying is that even the ones that are based on randomized trials, you better look twice at that randomized trial, make sure it meets your standards, uses an appropriate control arm, proper methodology. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's just good to, I guess, take things, take it with a grain of salt, no matter what the salt is and, you know. Yeah, I think it's important to look beyond the guideline. That's very well said. Soon to be Dr. Jeffrey Wagner, it's been a pleasure to have you here on the plenary session stage. When I told you you'd be giving the plenary session, is this what you had in mind? I mean, I, I ne- I've never expected myself to actually give a plenary session. <laughs> I'm usually in the back and I can't actually see the speaker. So this, this that's, is, that's where I find I'm honored. Like I said, I'm honored. This is, uh, this is really cool. So well, thank you for having me on. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. And it's a pleasure to work with you. And thanks to you, Dr. Markhart, Dr. Lammers, Dr. Ruby, who did the very hard work. And I estimated to be several thousands of hours spent on this project, which led to, I think, a very important paper um, that appeared in the British Medical Journal. So thank you, Dr. Yeah, Wagner. Thank you. All right, I'm back in plenary session HQ with Renee Diverstal. Renee is a practicing academic hospitalist here at OHSU. She did her medical school here at OHSU. Her residency at Man's Greatest Hospital, MGH, in Boston. (laughs) She joined the faculty here in, was it 2012? Yes. 2012, you joined the faculty in the Division of Hospital Medicine. And how do you divide your time here at OHSU? Well, it tends to vary a good bit. So in the beginning, it was split between clinical hospitalist service with me caring for the patients and then teaching hospitalist service with the the resident PA MD student teams and some preoperative medicine clinic. And over the years, it's taken up more and more time with the ultrasound administration Mm -hmm. teaching. And this year I am just doing teaching hospitalists in pre-op clinic. It's my first year. That sounds good actually. It's it's good, but I'm a little bit paranoid that without actually doing the inpatient hospital care, I'm going to get rusty. That's what so I was wondering about, my, but, but I don't think you my will. Fear. I don't think you will. Yeah. I think by being afraid of it means at least I know it's a possibility exactly. and I'll try harder. Right. So That's good. Well, that's a, that's a very nice blend. It is. And um, what what would your what would your ideal breakdown be if you could really set it? What what do you actually what of all your of all the hats you wear? What do you like the most? That's a tough question. Let's I say think, I've given you unlimited faculty yeah, support. You unlimited, can do you I want. can just do whatever I want. You can, do whatever, you can walk out of here. You don't have to come back if you really wanted to. Well, I guess that's what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, I could I teach ultrasound in Fiji, maybe. Oh, that, that would, would be nice. That would be excellent. A um, telehospitalist. Yes. I think my my absolute favorite part, the thing that gets me up and keeps me working late and traveling to do random fun things is definitely point of care ultrasound and the way that I think it can change practice, but also really revolutionize education. So to me, that's 
the most passionate part of my job. But I also, sometimes I think, gosh, I have to go back on service. It's so hard. You have to really get your game face on, yeah. get through your email list, try to not have too many meetings. And I definitely, I definitely feel that. But on the flip side, I think it would be a real challenge to not do some clinical medicine mm-hmm. because so much of the, the quote-unquote special sauce of point-of-care ultrasound mm-hmm. that we'll t- hopefully talk about mm-hmm. is that it's the clinician at the bedside augmenting their care. Right. And so I feel like I would, number one, be – I would just have no street cred if right. I didn't do any mm-hmm. clinical medicine. I'd be like the person in the magical little white tower saying, well, this is how I use it. Oh, wait, no, I don't actually, well, but there this lo- is how you could I, use I it. I think there are a lot of uh, academicians who really do fit that bill. They tell That's the rest true. of us what it's like to practice, and they haven't practiced they in don't. quite a bit. That's yes. why my co-author, Adam Sifu, once made the point that people should have a um, practice disclosure, just like financial disclosures. Tell us what you actually do. Do you actually see patients? When was the last time you read or heard of a patient? But That's incredible. I love that idea. <laughs> I thought it was a little let's do it it's a bold okay idea, fine but bold. No, no. it's a bold idea but I, I do kind of like it a part of me part of me really resonates but like you I don't think uh, I mean I think that um, I really do enjoy the clinical side and I, I would never even even I would never give that up uh, yeah, that's like my favorite part but I brought you here to the plenary session I told you you're gonna give the plenary session is this what you had in mind this is exactly what I had in mind. I mean, <laughs> I wish I'd been to a plenary session where I had a chair this comfortable. That though. is a very nice this chair. Is... And I don't want to tell listeners how much I paid for that chair, but I was driving around my neighborhood and I saw that chair and a sign on it that said free. That, and I thought, That is amazing. That not that a good chair? for? And that is price to move. And it did. It did move. Delightful. It moved right to my office. Delightful. So I, I want to talk to you about many things. I know you're you're an expert in ultrasound, and we're going to talk about ultrasound. And I think you're going to have a bone to pick with me because a few years ago, I made the foolish, foolish move of writing something on that topic. And, and then I made the even more foolish move of moving away from that topic. So I know nothing since. So you're going to have to enlighten me. But I was reading about you, and I found a very, very interesting paper. And I have to say, I like it so much. Um, it's, it's probably going to be a paper that I really do cite and talk about a lot. And I'm going Hooray. to take, uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is really wonderful. Um, and I'm going to ask you to take our listeners through it. Um, but it is entitled, A Randomized Control Trial of a CPR and Intubation Video, Dish- Video Decision Support Tool for Hospitalized Patients. And it was published in JGIM in 2015. Okay, and so as a bit of a backdrop, I think the listeners should know that um, when patients are hospitalized, um, many physicians ask the patient what their preference would be in the event, the unlikely event, were they to require mechanical ventilation um, or even cardiopulmonary resuscitation. If their heart were to stop beating or they were to stop breathing, what would they want for themselves? And as physicians, many of us have been in the room for many CPR events, especially for hospitalized patients. And I think some of us have noticed the reality is that rates of survival are low uh, for hospitalized patients. And some of us feel as if there may be some disconnect between a person's impression of what this intervention offers and what it actually does offer. And you all, you all looked into that and, and you all created a video tool to help people make a decision that was more compatible with what they wanted. Can you tell us what you did and what you found? 
Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, that was from my MGH days, and I was very fortunate. The lead author, Arij mm. Aljwari, she and I were, we call it co-juniors on The Bigelow. So oh, that the is I've the, heard of the Bigelow. Bigelow. Yeah, the infamous, infamous Bigelow. So we were on The Bigelow together and had very different styles. She'd gone to Harvard Medical School mm-hmm. and knew um, just, she's probably the smartest person I've ever met. And I'm sorry if I embarrass you, Arish, for saying that, but she's also incredibly well uh, published in the uh, BMT palliative care world, as I'm sure you have seen at mm-hmm. some of your oncology meetings. However, um, so on, on the Bigelow, she was the super genius, and I was just, you know, the girl from Oregon. And I think you're being too modest, <laughs> but... Uh... Maybe, but... Okay, so it's a big service. Two residents, four interns, 24 patients, wow. one to two attendings, and the wow. juniors run that service with the interns. And you only run the new patients with the attendings. So otherwise, the juniors are running the whole service. I see. And I, and I was saying, I heard the rumor that all of the physicians and all of the residents only wear short white coats. Is that true? So for the residents, it absolutely is. And for some of the more traditional attendings, they absolutely wear the short white coat. To signify they're always learning? Always learning, exactly. Mm. So a lot of subspecialists and different people. And of course, I haven't been back in the hospital other than walking through to see friends uh, in over six years now. So I'm not sure if that's changed. But um, the, the short white coat was kind of the general medicine, lifelong learning. But so mm-hmm. all that started, our connection started when we were on the Bigelow together. I and so oh, yeah. I was more of the gestalt, clinical, um, and Reeves just a super genius. So then we happened to be on our research mm-hmm. elective together and you had to come up with a project. And so this was a project she'd been working on with her mentor, Angelo Valandes, mm-hmm. who she'd already done a previous outpatient study with. And so um, she said, hey, do you wanna work on this with me? I was super excited to do it and over over the project and and the rest of residency, we became great friends. Mm-hmm. So, and that's a under discussed yeah. point. How often um, the people uh, we become friends with are the ones we do, you know, really important research with. Yeah, absolutely. So, but go the, on. Yeah, I really want to know. No, okay, no. So, so you guys are working together, and and yeah. they had already kind of had this groundwork laid out. Mm-hmm. In the video, the video they knew that the inpatient setting hadn't been studied, <clears throat> so the video had already been made, and so and they were ready to rock in the inpatient setting. And so we uh, started once it went through the IRB, started actually mm-hmm. doing the patient encounter. So as it mentioned, they uh, we would ask the different residents and attendings, "Do you have anybody on your service that meets these criteria?" Criteria. Mm-hmm. And what the were the criteria, criteria outlined mm-hmm. in the paper? So it had to be um, metastatic cancer, mm-hmm. advanced heart failure, mm-hmm. a couple of other things, uh, estimated prognosis under one year. Mm-hmm. So these were supposed to be patients, not that abstract. In ten years, you might get sick enough to die, but the patients who are nearing—they're not on hospice, mm-hmm. but nearing the end of end of life. The people in whom um, this might potentially. Uh, come up in the hospitalization. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so then we would, you know, the attending would agree and we would go, so myself, Arish, Mahir, um, another uh, another resident, mm-hmm. Xing Xing, we would then uh, go interview the patients or consent the patients first. Mm-hmm. And then they would be randomized and we would go through the, this process. So it'd be initially, what are your preferences? And then some uh, basic knowledge questions. Mm-hmm. And then they would be randomized either to the video or to the standard of care, which is what they'd already had done. I see. And then you would just 
I should mention that there's a script that you go through. So I do, I, I no see. longer have that script, and I it was see. many years ago. Uh, but we would follow the script so that we weren't in an attempt to eliminate, eliminate bias, bias mm-hmm. exactly, mm-hmm. so that we weren't steering them as we were doing it. I see. And what so. and what was your? Um, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you. No, um, it's fine. What was what was the takeaway? conclusion of this paper? What did you find? Yeah, so to me, the most interesting thing, the patients that were randomized to receiving the video, which it wasn't a graphic, gory, bloody video of this is what a code could be, because mm-hmm. we've all done those codes on the patients exsanguinating from esophageal varices. It wasn't that. It was chest compressions on a mannequin and intubated. It, it was, uh, and it, it mentions at the end mm-hmm. of the paper, one of the secondary outcomes was that patients did not find it disturbing right, I saw that, at yeah. all. So the outcome was that patients who had been randomized to the video were more likely to be DNR, DNI, or not want cardiopulmonary resuscitation, not want to be intubated. The thing that was the most powerful to me as a person actually doing these visits was the distinct difference in their knowledge, their knowledge base about uh, one of the questions, a true-false question, don't remember the exact wording, but it was something along the lines of patients who undergo cardiopulmonary resuscitation often live to leave the hospital. Mm-hmm. And then the one after that was something along the lines of, you know, with few uh, few side effects from it or, or something along those lines. And the patients that had seen the video were so much more educated mm-hmm. on what these things meant and what mm-hmm. the outcomes would be. So I actually don't, I can't say I don't care. Um, I care what patients choose to do, and sometimes I wish that they wouldn't be full code because Mm -hmm. I don't think it will go well for them, but they have the autonomy to do so. Mm -hmm. But it's important for me that they know what they're doing and why Mm -hmm. and and make an educated decision. Mm -hmm. And so that, to me, was the most powerful point of it. Yeah, um, I I think you you put that so well. and I think that's what I thought really was amazing about this is that this is um, not a video that causes fear. Um, it is a very matter-of-fact video. People had no aversion to watching it, um, but it dramatically changed people's preferences about these decisions. Um, and you even did like a one-year follow-up where you actually went to see like how many people were actually intubated, et cetera. Um, and that showed like it suggested that this actually did pass forward. It actually led to mm-hmm. real-world implications. And the orders later, um, I think there were mm-hmm. two patients that were intubated who previously had indicated they wouldn't want to be. Mm-hmm. And of course, they could have changed their mind in right. the meantime. We never know. But uh, there were long-standing outcomes as well. So it was a cool one to. I, I was very proud to be a part of it. Um, oh yeah. Even if I wasn't a driver, I was. I was very proud to be a part of it. And sounds and like proud a great of the team. Result. Yeah. Yeah. They're great. And such a great story of how it got started. And it also um, reminds me of, I think we see uh, over the last 20 years, there are a couple of nice papers. I think the first paper was New England Journal in the mid-90s by John Lantos. Um, and he studied rates of CPR on television shows. And this was in the era of Chicago Hope and ER. Yes, and yes. Um, it was like, I forget off the top of my head, but 70% survival to hospital discharge. Um, and he contrasted that with the reality that providers know, which is that outcomes are um, not always that good. Yeah. And if you create a video that merely provides more information about what we're talking about, um, does it in a way that's extremely palatable and desirable by patients and dramatically changes what people choose, I think what you're really showing is that culturally there is a huge disconnect between our perceptions of and knowledge of CPR and the reality of it 
And if we bridge that disconnect with knowledge, um, we really change what people do. Yeah, that that was what, what we witnessed. And I was so inspired by that, that when I came back, I'd met with Susan Toll, who's the director of the mm-hmm. Center of Ethics here, about some of this video work and worked with her and Eric Fromey, who's now back at um, the Farber, I believe, or working um, back in Boston somewhere, doing amazing things. I think he's with Gawande. With Gawande, yeah. yeah. Uh, but we had created uh, the first organ was one of the first states with a pulse. There's a ton of great you know information about the physician orders for life-sustaining treatment, but there was no video or educational content directed mm. at patients. It was all to providers, teaching providers what a pulse was. And so we went through many, many iterations, many, uh, many meetings and conversations and filming, and and we actually created along with um, Tina Castaneras from Hood River. Mm-hmm. We created a patient-directed pulse video that's been seen, uh, you know, thousands of times on YouTube. They actually link in certain hospital systems. They link to the video with oh, an wow. e-pulse here, and so that was one. Um, and this is so my father since passed away, but Sorry, he was amazing for this because he's very blue-collar. Uh, had you know dropped out of high school, ran away, got a GED, like just salt of the earth guy. And so I was going through this video with him. Dad, tell me, is this how is this language? Am I being, mm-hmm. uh, am I being uh, straightforward enough? And he'd be like, No, kid, you can't say that to people. Like you know, straighten that out. And so he helped us create this language for this patient-directed pulse video oh, wow. that actually is really amazing. And he was able to come to. I gave grand rounds probably four years ago. Mm-hmm. On this is when we were working on the e-pulse with. Um, the Vinca company out of Stanford. So we were working on the e-pulse integration into our electronic medical record. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I gave a grand rounds on that and he was able to come see it and it was really cool. Oh, that's so wonderful. So and yeah, that the patient-directed was... education is, is a passion of mine that I no longer academically pursue, but mm-hmm. it still is very, very close to my heart. That's wonderful. But you never know in academics, you may, you may come it's back true. to it. It's true. And that's really great that you're a father had a chance to be able to shape your yeah. scholarly work and, yeah, and, it was your, awesome. and your work. That That's really such a wonderful story. Maybe I'll ask you about what you, what's your new passion? Yeah, so when I came back from Mass General, it actually started out being simulation and ultrasound. So with some of my uh, senior resident colleagues, I wasn't a director of this program, but helped do some of the teaching. So we would, when the residents were on their outpatient month, or sorry, when the interns were on their outpatient month, we would put them through simulations. Mm -hmm. And those were um, kind of common code scenarios, or not necessarily codes, but pericodes. So your hypotensive patient with aortic stenosis and AFib with RVR. The, The rapid responses. Exactly, the rapid responses. And so I helped teach those along with some amazing people like Susan Mathai and Eli Mulaslavsky and some um, just some other uh, great people that have published that work and um, continue to do more in it. So I actually came back from Mass General very interested in simulation and ultrasound, having done some work with the interns with mm-hmm. a program that, that some other people were running based on rapid response situations for the interns. So I thought simulation is it. Simulation is where I need to be. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, my uh, other friend had diagnosed overnight on an admission this pericardial fusion with ultrasound by himself. And I also was like, whoa, but that too, that's really cool too. So I kind of had these two things that were really um, 
kind of burning interest for me right as I came back. And they say sometimes in the beginning of your career, you just kind of run down everything Mm -hmm. until you see what sticks. Mm -hmm. And so I had started with some of the video work Mm -hmm. and then the simulation work helped create the intern intensive that we do here now. And as a part of that, Mm -hmm. threw in, um, you know, been learning the ultrasound stuff. And then just over time, the ultrasound became... Uh, the the absolute the the top passion because I think I was seeing I had what uh, one of my colleagues calls the first kiss moment which is one that I had mentioned before in a different setting mm-hmm. a patient where ultrasound I don't have the outcomes data for it but in this patient uh-huh, uh-huh. it changed everything okay and so um, that that really that moment that patient that two a.m. complete diagnosis change triage change treatment change. But how did you have an ultrasound in that moment? Um, So it wasn't the handheld that you'd Uh written the editorial about. It was, I had, there were some teaching machines throughout the hospital, Mm. or I think that this one was on the floor for procedures or something. Right. So I just, I was, I'd learned enough to go look and say, that ain't right. And so then I took the ultrasound machine down to the ER because it was in my first Mm -hmm. year back and I didn't know enough to feel confident about Mm -hmm. changing Mm -hmm. my decision making. And that's something that people often will say, ultrasound has no radiation, we can't harm patients with it. But if I make a wrong call and I diurese sepsis, you know, that actually right. is bad for patients. Right, right. So um, I ran down to the ER and I was like, you guys, look at this, look at this. And they agreed. It was um, basically this patient had been transferred with a alleged pneumonia that mm-hmm. ended up being a, a lung cancer with PEs. Oh, I see. And so that overnight had really changed mm-hmm. uh, my management of this patient. So that first kiss story, and then I was obsessed. Then I was, you really? know, scanning mm-hmm. everyone and just learning and then internal medicine six years ago if you're doing this you're really out at the front yeah and it then, wasn't it wasn't um that popular back then no and then all of a sudden you start teaching it and then you get to do fun things like this but then how did you get um well i guess i have many questions yeah first, i skipped i skipped a lot there <laughs> oh yeah no but I, my first question is um uh, do, do you own an ultrasound now i do not own my own ultrasound oh, i see no so There are, scattered around the hospital, Uh there are machines for procedures. There's machines in all of the intensive care units. Uh OHSU has standardized what's in the units and their workflow for that. Um, There are machines in the simulation center. And then directing point of care ultrasound education here at OHSU, I made the point that you cannot only learn on pre-med students with a BMI of 20. You have to have (laughs) machines out in the hospital Mm -hmm. to really practice on our normal average size patients or else you'll never be able to clinically integrate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Different people have different ways to describe this, but I call it like the three POCUS pillars. Mm -hmm. So you have to be able to uh, acquire your image, so image acquisition Mm -hmm. and then image interpretation and then your clinical integration. And so the acquisition part, you need to be able to acquire in skinny normal people I like see. our courses mm-hmm. usually and then on real patients in the hospital I see. patients who can't move their arms can't get into left lateral decubitus position all those things i see so i guess um what did you think about <laughs> i'm kind of curious uh so i sent you this article that we yeah. had done a few years ago and i i was hoping you'd come here and set me straight and tell me what i got wrong um but um this was i think 2012 2013 was published so i think we wrote it like 20 
2012, I hope, but maybe even 2011. You know how this publishing yes, world is. Yes. Right? Maybe even 2010. I have a paper languishing in purgatory somewhere <laughs> right now as we speak. I know. There needs you... to be justice. For, I have a few. and <laughs> I, uh, Every day I shed a tear for those papers who, which may never see the light those of day. Those lost souls. Those lost souls. But uh, this paper really, um, this was around the time where doctors would be carrying or there was a thought, a uh, hope yes. that doctors would someday yes. carry a steth- uh, an ultrasound the way we carry a stethoscope. And we pointed out that, you know, as you pointed out just a minute ago, that merely because it doesn't emit radiation doesn't mean there will not be a downside. There may be downsides. Potential downsides would be if you ended up diagnosing a lot of things that you otherwise wouldn't diagnose and otherwise wouldn't cause problems in a patient's natural life, a problem called overdiagnosis. We conceded that it had already shown rather remarkable and impressive results for a number of bedside procedures in which it clearly improved outcomes. Um, But our concern, I think, was that you know, you'd get the average medical student slapping it down and looking for thyroid nodules and looking for, you know, incidental omas that shouldn't be mm-hmm. looked for, and that was one of the concerns we had. Um, but how has the field changed since we wrote that paper? What what do we get? Do we get anything right, or is there we were we too pessimistic? Did we get it all wrong? What no, do you I think, think I, don't, I don't think you got it all wrong at all. I think that things have evolved, and maybe our understanding mm-hmm. in the emergency medicine. I don't. I mean, do emergency medicine people listen to your podcast? I don't know. I can hope. I'm just I, kidding. I know, that, if I know you're there's out one. There, there's okay. one at least. I to know that one person. Yeah. Um, so emergency medicine is has a very well laid out guideline from American College of Emergency Physicians. They they have the different ways that they use it, and uh, they're very specific about these things. But for the rest of us out in the real world, internal medicine. In, not the real world, but like not in these critical life or death situations, it's more serious for us to think about. And and so I actually appreciate appreciated some of the the questions, you know, do you have outcomes? Do you, do, do we know that this actually helps anyone at all? Now tell me, tell listeners, how do you use the ultrasound in your practice? How how would you advise it be used? Yeah, so um, the concern about finding all the incidental lomas and the thyroid nodules and all of that is really when you're trying to use it as this like panacea to unlock everything in the body. Mm-hmm. Like, let's just look at the whole body, like right. the donut of truth, the CT scanner. Like, right. let's just, we see right. so much stuff on that. Right. We see so much incidental stuff. So really, it's about having a focused question. I see. Okay. And so I like that. we'll call a regular diagnostic radiology ultrasound. That one we'll call like a consultative ultrasound. Okay. Whereas point of care ultrasound, bedside, handheld, focused, whatever you want to call it, clinician at the bedside, Mm -hmm. the most important thing is that you have a question. I'm not going there to scan this whole patient for funsies, unless I'm with my students and then I do it. But um, I'm going there with a question. Is this patient the triple threat, COPD, CHF, and a productive cough? Is this a COPD exacerbation, a heart failure exacerbation, or a pneumonia? So I'm looking at their heart, their lungs, some of their their inferior vena cava perhaps Mm -hmm. and i'm trying to tease this out just like with my physical exam i'm looking at their jvp their legs is there a patojugular reflux do they have crackles do they have wheezes Mm -hmm. so i'm trying to use it in that setting to answer a question are they volume overloaded yes or no do they have a consolidative process yes or no i see and tell me um for that particular question it's a very interesting question it's a situation that i think many people face Mm -hmm. um what would the data suggest that the ultrasound does? Uh, yeah, what what does it show? Yeah, so as you mentioned in the editorial, coming out of the emergency medicine literature, there's a lot of data about 
uh, nearing your diagnosis or kind of diag uh, diagnostic certainty. So, you know, we find B lines in this patient, which can, I shouldn't go into minutia, B lines, which can be significant for pulmonary edema in the right setting. Mm -hmm. But in a rheumatoid arthritis patient or a patient who's been on amiodone for forever, it could mm -hmm. be pulmonary fibrosis. So you still got to use your brain. That's like the number one take home point is mm -hmm. you still have to use your brain and be, be a clinician. Um, Put it in the context. Yes, mm -hmm. all in context. But certain findings can absolutely be very, very sensitive, very specific for findings like pulmonary edema mm -hmm. or um, reduced ejection fraction. I we see. know that we're better with ultrasound than many parts of our classic physical examination. But as you mentioned before, one of the biggest questions is, does it actually translate into better care? Mm -hmm. um, so that's what we're all trying to prove. We don't have the database yet, but we have a lot of anecdotes. Mm -hmm. us I am Pocus nerds out there on Twitter and like the that. interwebs. We uh, we are firm we are firm believers, and we're trying to build up the research database um, to to correlate or to show that our clinical use does it is better for patients. But you have sensitivity, specificity, those sorts of characteristics for some of these findings. For some of these things, yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. There's um, a great Mayo Clinic. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, it's Mayo Clinic Proceedings Internal Medicine Review by um, Anjali Bagra, David Tierney, Neelam Soni, and I forgot one other person who I am forever sorry to. Um, <laughs> but they they actually pull in some of the data from McGee, uh, his, you know, yeah, like, Steve McGee. yeah, the Steve McGee, the amazing book. Um, so they kind of contrast some of those things. And I'll just tell listeners if they're wondering what this book is. Stephen McGee, professor at University of Washington, mm -hmm. has a book called Evidence-Based Physical Diagnosis. It is excellent. And it changed the way I thought about the physical exam mm -hmm. because it um, – and I think there are some people who believe the physical exam is um, a ritual, uh, which value is merely to kind of go through the steps and perform as a ritual. Um, but Steve McGee views it as a – as you do. Uh, you go in with a focused question, and you need to know what test – to run, and there are certain physical exam findings that have exceptional sensitivity, specificity, positive negative likelihood ratios um, on par with perhaps even troponin for MI. Um, but there are other physical exam findings that are um, neither sensitive nor specific, mm -hmm. um, and you really shouldn't hang your hat on. And reading the book will allow you to separate the two. Like the fluid wave, for instance, right. fluid wave and shifting dullness. I'm um, just to throw out, I was a third year clerkship director here for a year before the the POCUS job really got big and we started running stuff across the university. Um, and the students asked me at one of our clerkship director rounds, uh, so what's the best way to look for ascites on my physical exam? Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm sorry, I know I'm supposed to tell you it's shifting dullness, but I can't. It's to go get an ultrasound probe and put it on the patient. Like I just, I can't. Um, so there are certain things where- You can't where perpetuate falsehoods. I, I cannot, I cannot handle it. I see. But- So do you use it for procedures? If you did a Thora, a Para? Yeah. So to me, if we were to break it apart, as yeah. we mentioned, so we have, you know, we're talking about our diagnostic. I'm trying to figure out, is this mm -hmm. a CHF, COPD, exacerbation, or pneumonia? Mm -hmm. That's my diagnostic ball ballpark. Or mm -hmm. in AKI, mm -hmm. does this patient have hydronephrosis or urinary obstruction? Okay. Okay. So those are like my diagnoses. Mm -hmm. And um, again, the emergency medicine, people very firmly believe that's not augmenting the physical exam. That is a separate test that you're doing, a separate procedure, because it really is more concrete in the physical exam, us internists tend to be a little bit more in the middle on that. Mm -hmm. um, so you'll hear people say, I'm going to augment my physical exam with my ultrasound. There's a lot of political debate around this. Does this have to do with billing? Uh, I mean, 
It, perhaps. I see. <laughs> perhaps. I see. <laughs> I see. So, okay. So that's the one thing, the diagnostic. The procedures are like the no duh. That's a low hanging fruit. That's the stuff that there's great outcomes, mm-hmm. both length of stay, you know, length of stay, billing, number of needle sticks, mm-hmm. number of complications. What procedures? So, thoracentesis, paracentesis, mm-hmm. um, even lumbar punctures. I know less yeah. about the mm-hmm. data there, but mm-hmm. in our very heavy patients on those soft air beds where their mm. lumbar spine is curving and you can't feel it, you can very easily ultrasound um, the vertebral processes and look for the gap there and mark it. Um, peripheral IVs, that's something they do a lot more in the ER. Mm-hmm. At OHSU, I can get a pick in a patient and, you know, like, four hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're crazy good and fast here, but that wasn't the case at Mass General. And so mm-hmm. ultrasound guided peripheral IVs were very useful or that radial art line. Again, I don't know the data in this one, but the radial art line that everyone would break, you know, you can, you can do that with a, a fewer sticks theoretically in my anecdotal experience. I'm sure it's out there. No, I shouldn't say that. No, I'm I, in your office. Uh, right? I, You'll I, find me. You'll find me and tell my me I'm wrong. My listeners will fact check you. <laughs> yes, I, I oh my gosh. You. But um, I, I have to, I, off the top of my head, I, I'm not sure about the data for A-line, but uh, again, yeah. I haven't looked in and many years. And central lines, of course. Your old central lines, yeah. yeah. Central lines, so. so those those are just the very obvious, mm-hmm. right? Those are those are no problem. And the last piece is really the educational piece. Mm-hmm. And more and more, it's we're using it to augment anatomy. Like, see how you can scan the kidneys from the complete back? That's why you get CVA tenderness, you know, or mm, look I at see. this Valsalva. Look at what happens to this patient's IJ. I just did it from one to two. I was teaching the IM core students mm-hmm. and we make them Valsalva. What, why is that happening? What's happening to intrathoracic pressure? Mm-hmm. What is this doing to preload? What is this doing to cardiac output? I see. Um, you think that the lungs sound decreased or you know dullness to percussion on the right side, mm-hmm. show you the pleural effusion so that you, okay, you were totally right. Or I think that I saw the jugular venous pulsation up by the jaw and you can ultrasound and show it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I'm not saying that we have to replace all of these things, but it can actually be quite confirmatory when you have learners that are very skeptical of their own skills. Mm, I see. So and, that's another way. And helps them um, bridge the textbook with the patient mm-hmm. and, and have things make a little more sense for them. Well, I wanted to shift gears and ask you a little bit about one other topic. Yeah. <clears throat> so, you're in you're a hospitalist doctor, a hospitalist physician. Um yes. there's a lot of talk in medicine broadly, but all, but perhaps particularly in hospitalist medicine about the dreaded burnout. Mm. What is burnout for the listeners who may not know what it is? the two people who have not yet burnt out. Um, And um, what what do you do to think about it and avoid it? Yeah, so that's a great question. I don't, you know, I don't have the exact uh, definition in front of me. That's fine. But um, I, to me, burnout is, uh, I think one of the hallmark words is depersonalization or the sense that you're, I guess I'll just take it back to my dad's terms, right? My dad would like the basic like eighth grade level, you know, like, so the the tank is empty. There is just nothing mm-hmm. left for you to mm-hmm. give uh, your patients or yourself or your partner or anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, for some people it is, they're normally a very compassionate person, mm-hmm. but they kind of are like, oh, well that, 
I shouldn't, I don't want to like use any slurs, but you know that, uh, you know that like that druggie over there in room mm. 12 is just sitting here for six weeks and mm-hmm. kind of being less compassionate. Stigmatizing even. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, less loss compassionate. Of loss of empathy, mm-hmm. loss of ability to kind of go the extra mile that you mm-hmm. normally would. Um, for me, it's just this kind of like overwhelming sense of like fatigue such that normally if that patient was cold, I would find that warm blanket warmer and I would bring it back to them. Mm-hmm. Or if they wanted mm-hmm. orange juice, I would go get it for them because I'm not just a doctor. I'm, I'm a person and I want to make them more mm-hmm. comfortable. Absolutely. And so for me, it's when I get into those little scenarios where I just I'm like, I can't. I'm just so tired. I can't even think about this right now. Mm-hmm. And I haven't, um, I've talked about this on another podcast that in residency, I had some pretty significant burnout. And I think it was just because you don't have those classic times to relax. Like I don't have time to go get a massage, nor did I have money living in <laughs> Boston because we discussed the cost right. of living in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, but never letting myself decompress. It'd be, you know, work all day, go home and work on, maybe go interview a couple of those patients from right. that paper we discussed. Right, right, work <laughs> and, on your research. Yeah, work on your research mm-hmm. and then go home and then, you know, eat over my laptop looking at something else and then go to bed and then go back to work. Wow, yeah. Um, and so the the chief of psychiatry at MGH at the time had, uh, my residency program director had sent me to him and said, he's just, he's amazing. This is like what he does. And so he, this analogy of, of the gas tank and that you have to fill it and that you fill it with little things like learning things, uh, helping people, uh, teaching you know, that light bulb, when that light bulb goes on in a student's light eyes, just when we were doing the IJ and mm-hmm. they were so excited about it and comparing their IJs, like who could make it blow up the most, like that to me, that really fills the tank. And then being the, you know, the human brain is going to remember more of the bad than the good. I know mm-hmm. there's a more sophisticated way to say that, but that's my, mm-hmm. my layperson mm-hmm. description. So just trying to be present and notice those good things so that you don't just kind of dwell on the bad ones. But there's, I mean, I just had a friend pass away last week and I was like, screw the, screw the world. This all sucks. Mm -hmm. And then I just actually just let myself take a full day off and I did nothing Uh and I ignored everyone and everything. And, uh, that was good. That was what I needed. So that, I guess that's the phenomenon, but why do people feel that it affects hospitalist medicine more than other fields? I think, you know, that's a tough one. Part of it, and this is this is the way that hospital medicine was created, was that you just kill yourself for a week at a time mm-hmm. to have a week off. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that the those stretches of time are something that's incredibly challenging, mm-hmm. and some people like that, and some people don't. Mm-hmm. So if you end up work, you know, just all those those seven fourteen hour days in a row, mm-hmm. even if you have those seven days off afterwards, mm-hmm. you're still so exhausted. Mm-hmm. So I've never been, um, because I don't do 100% clinical time, I don't, my longest stretches are two weeks for the teaching hospitalist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I'm I'm very tired at the end, but I also am getting to fill my tank more with the teaching and right. learning and, and stuff like that. And then what can, what can um, providers do, maybe even re- residents do um, to, uh, to proactively avoid some of these feelings? Yeah. I th- I think just finding your sense of support for me, my my friends in residency were, it almost felt like we'd been in the military together. And I don't mean to, to say that my experience was as tough as being in the military. Every man in my family has been in the military. So thank you all for your service uh, out there if I listen to this podcast. But um, it was like you'd shared blood, sweat, and tears together, just everything. So having people that 
can just listen and not try to fix. I think just the sounding board is hugely important. Mm. Um, and I think another thing in the hospital is feeling like there's so much broken that you can't fix. Mm-hmm. We have so many complicated social situations and trying to have a good discharge plan. And sometimes you don't have it. And I'm going to send this guy to the street with insulin and know he's going to come back. And it just feels it's very emotionally taxing Mm -hmm. and for those ones i think that's why we we kind of build up some walls just saying well i can't change it but it's like a coping mechanism Mm -hmm. a life coping mechanism but Mm -hmm. but i think you put that well that um the people with whom we train uh we often emerge with very deep and long-lasting friendships because you kind of shared a very intense experience uh for for a period of time Well, Renee Diverstal, I want to thank you so much for taking time to come to come talk to us on plenary session. I know, uh, uh, I know, um, you know, you've done really wonderful things, and, and you're working on so many important projects. So, I thank you for taking time out of your schedule to tell us about it. Thank you for having me, and I really, um, I just have to say, I love the podcast, and I feel like I learned so much about study design. I've tweeted this. I learn a lot about study design and critical analysis every time I listen. So I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Renee. And I'll be sure to pay you after the broadcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. A lot of money. A lot of money. More than this chair. (laughs) More than that chair, because that was was price to move, as they say. Well, thank you so much for coming. And um, uh, we look forward to having you again in the future to talk about more interesting things from the world of ultrasound medicine. Thank you. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a new podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this show and you like this podcast, uh, please go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. Uh, It means a lot. Um, Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Um, or send us an email at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts, questions, topics you want to cover, let us know. We'd love to get some feedback. Uh, Plenary Session uh, owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, uh, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.